Well, good morning again, and happy first long weekend of the summer. Now, you know they go quickly, right? Before long, we'll be saying this is the last long weekend of the summer. So make sure you squeeze all the juice out of it. Now, if you're visiting with us today, welcome. Uh, We have been in a series called Ten Words, the Decalogue, which is the Ten Commandments. And uh, today, uh, we are on the Seventh Commandment. And it's five words. Five words. But five, hmm, troublesome words. Let's stand. And uh, this is what they are. On the count of three, one, two, three. Okay, let's pray. Father, again, we want to pause. First of all, again, to acknowledge your presence amongst us. In fact, even in us. And we thank you for your expression of love and generosity in Jesus Christ. And for the beautiful Holy Spirit that takes what you've accomplished in Jesus and makes it available and applicable and possible in our lives. And we ask that that same Spirit would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to comprehend... And particularly as we leave this room, this property, this facility, and go out into our homes and our relationships and our neighborhoods and our communities and where we work and where we get our education and where we buy our services, that you would help us to live out the faith that we profess as disciples of Jesus Christ. And we would do that in tangible, physical, practical, and meaningful ways. And this we ask in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ, the name that is named above everything that is named, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I have entitled this um, message, 10 words, the subtitle is that, oh, so delicate topic. The most scandalous misprint of the Bible was in 1631 when the new hot-off-the-press King James Bible, it was discovered that there was a word missing. And the word that was missing was the word not in the seventh commandment. And the Authorized version read, thou shalt commit adultery. Well, King Charles and the Archbishop of Canterbury were livid. And they fined the printer a year's worth of income. Sorry, not a year's, a lifetime's worth of income. It became known after that, the 1631 version of the uh, King James Bible, it became known as the Wicked Bible or the Adulterer's Bible or the Sinner's Bible. No kidding. How often, how often do you think about Bible prophecy? 
That was a question that a professor asked the class. And one of the students responded in a way that everybody else was thinking, well, probably about a couple times a year. Okay, the professor continued, how many times a day do you have sexual thoughts? Silence. The professor had made the point. Sexuality is probably one of the most tentative topics that Christians talk about. But it is something that all of us think about regularly. And because we live in a society and culture that we live in, it is crucial that we talk about it. So let's make the most obvious observation. Our culture is over-sexualized. Now, this is not new, and it's not unique to our culture. I'm pretty much convinced that every society in history has been over-sexualized. That's why they tell us that prostitution is the world's oldest profession. And even in the time of the prude Victorian England, on the surface, everything looked prim and proper, but underneath, it was a whole other reality. But neither of those take away from the fact that you and I, we live in an over-sexualized culture and society. Sex sells. And it sells in more ways than one. Sexuality is power. We use sexuality to sell everything from toothpaste to automobiles. And if you've ever been to an auto show, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But we also see this over-sexualized culture and society that we live in in the hookup culture in universities and colleges. Now, this is not to mean, students, that every university and college student hooks up to have sex. But many do. Donna Freitas, in her book called The End of Sex, and here's the subtitle to her book, The End of Sex, How Hookup Culture is leaving a generation unhappy, sexually unfulfilled, and confused about intimacy. And she writes about the troubling trend of the hookup culture in our colleges and universities, and she writes this, college has gone from being a place where hookups happened to a place where hookup culture dominates student attitudes among about all forms of intimacy, the hookup has become normative. But that shouldn't surprise us because the truth is that it is the result of a generation of both the young and the old that we are bombarded daily, hourly, and sometimes minute by minute with sexuality from either print 
or TV or the internet or movies or social media. And so we live in an over-sexualized culture and society. But there's also this. The Bible is marginalized. Now we know, and if you've ever read much these days, that it is very fashionable in our time to be very critical and to beat up on all things Western culture, whether it's the Bible or the church or Christianity. But Western culture is a marvel in the history of civilization. There has never been like anything like it ever in the history of the world. And it's because of its Judeo-Christian roots that we have what we have. But we have forgotten our roots and we have turned our backs on what or who or whom got us to where we are. But that brings us to this, cause and effect. Now, we all know that adultery, infidelity, affairs happen. And we think we know why, but there are multiple answers to the question of why. Somebody said it is easier to label than it is to delve. But in the context of the seventh commandment that we read just a moment ago, I think it is important to get to the meaning, to getting to the why of infidelity, of adultery. I think that is important. So obviously... The first one, or the first reason why, is that transgression is at the heart of human nature. That transgression is natural for us all. Most of us can remember in our childhood the thrill in hiding The thrill in sneaking, of being bad, of not being caught, not being found out or discovered, and getting away with it. It's because we are human persons with physical bodies, with sexual desires, that get out of balance. But there's also this. Esther Perel, in her book called The State of Affairs, isn't that a great title? Says this, psychological jargon has replaced religious cant, and sin has been eclipsed by pathology. We are no longer sinners, we are sick. And then she goes on and says this, she says, ironically, it was much easier to cleanse ourselves of our sins than it is to get rid of a diagnosis. And there's also this. We are not unfaithful or commit adultery or have affairs just because we are bad, sinful people. There are other reasons why we break the seventh commandment. Now, some people think 
that infidelity in affairs and adultery only happens when something is wrong with the marriage. That adultery can happen when there's nothing significantly wrong in a particular marriage. Uh, Bill Morrow says that there, it takes a combination of three things for any one person to have an affair. Opportunity, proximity, and chemistry. Reminds me of the old adage, love and eros wake up the most tired person. Oh, you don't see the humor in that, it's okay. Your measure of discomfort is pretty high right now, isn't it? Just take a breath. It's going to be okay. Some people commit adultery because of two of our greatest fears. One is getting older, and the second is our fear of death, mortality. It's um, almost cliche, I recognize it, but it's why men and women have midlife crisis, and often the result of that midlife crisis is an affair. It's sometimes an issue of virility. Do I really have what it takes to bed another person or even a younger person? Now, generally it is said that men cheat because of boredom and fear of intimacy. And women cheat because of loneliness and hunger for intimacy. Now, infidelity will never solve any of these needs that will only complicate them. And we must recognize the importance of the ache and the longing and the desire that is in each one of us that can only be met through sexual union. It is the way that God wired us. It is the way that we are. But I like what one person said. When God created Eve, he took her straight from Adam's rib. And not one of us has fully recovered from the surgery. Sometimes, tragedy leads to an affair. A life-threatening illness or chronic illness, or something as tragic and sad as a baby or a child dying, or it can be as something as a loved one who dies like a parent, and adult men and women go off the rails morally. Now we've seen this, I have seen this. In situations where the elderly mom and dad, who is either the stabilizing influence of the family or the controlling figure in the family, when that mom or dad dies, I have seen grown men and grown women abandon their Christian values and abandon their morals and have affairs. Adultery is not just sex with the wrong person. Adultery is intimacy without commitment. And one of the reasons why the Bible condemns adultery is because it tears 
this intimacy apart. And that's the lie of adultery. And which is discovered way too late. As somebody said that infidelity promises like a god, but it pays like the devil. We will not be fulfilled. We will only be depleted. And that's the lie of adultery, that adultery will sometimes satisfy us. And let me tell you this. This is not mine. This is somebody else's. The grass is not greener on the other side of the fence. There's just more manure over there. Think about the harm, the pain. I mean, I once said to a friend of mine, I said, you know, one of the things that, don't get me wrong on this, but one of the things that keeps me from, or has kept me from being, kept me from anything um, immoral is the pain, the embarrassment, the self-disgust, the self-hatred that follows in the wake and then think about the desecration of the sacredness of the human body and the desecration of the sacredness of sexuality and of the sexual union. The sin against God and against another person and against ourselves. The betrayal. And then the harm that it does to children that infidelity gives serious mixed messages to children. <clears throat> Excuse me. If an affair leads to a failed marriage, younger children below 12, 13, often grow up thinking that it was their fault. That somehow they believe that they are responsible, that it's their fault that mommy and daddy are getting a divorce. And think about the harm, particularly if we are Christians. The harm and the damage that it does to Christ himself. And the harm and the damage and the reproach that it brings to the cause of Christ. And the harm that it brings... To the church. Pleasure is not as important as honor. So how do we move forward? Well, I think the way forward is neither condemning nor condoning. And so the point here is not to condemn or condone. There is a world of difference between understanding something and justifying something. So what do we do after an affair? What do we do if we or our spouse has had an affair? Well, let's start here. First of all, bitterness and revenge is not helpful. 
There is nothing to be gained, there is nothing beneficial about breeding continual bitterness and seeking revenge. Galatians chapter 5 verse 15 says, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. That revenge and bitterness are not good. It's not the way forward. And it may not be worth. There may be nothing gained either from ending the marriage. Ending the marriage is not always the solution. And neither is staying angry. Now, the dark emotions are, in, are normal. And we should expect that we are going to be angry and there's going to be anger. That's normal. It's healthy. It's the way it's supposed to be. But we cannot continue to be angry on endlessly. Because, as Esther Perel says, <clears throat> anger... <clears throat> is an analgesic, a pain reliever, that temporarily numbs the pain and an amphetamine that provides a surge of energy and confidence. Anger temporarily eases loss, self-doubt, and powerlessness. But we cannot stay angry forever. It's not healthy. Forgiveness. Now, forgiveness in the wake of adultery and an affair and infidelity is complicated. And in the wake of those, forgiveness becomes more of a process than an event, depending on the violation. But we can't stay there either, because Lewis B. Smead says, to forgive is to set a prisoner free. And to discover that the prisoner was you. But there's also this. Trust, once it is violated, is very difficult to rebuild. But it is worth rebuilding if the couple is prepared to move forward. But I think that we would be naive to suggest that affairs do not end marriages. They do. Unfaithfulness is always painful and it never helps the marriage. But what about before? What about before an affair? Now, everybody, just look at me for a moment. You're feeling tense. And I understand, and that's okay. But look at your neighbor and say, are you feeling as intense as I am? Go ahead. Does that feel good? Okay, now we can move on. 
So let me give us some practical suggestions about before an affair happens. Well, first of all, beware of the magnetism of adultery. Uh, Dictionary.com, although none of us actually need a definition for lust, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, is this. Lust is an intense sexual desire or appetite or uncontrolled or illicit sexual desire. Go dictionary.com. But sometimes an affair begins with the look. The look of infidelity. And of course, we couldn't do this without referring to Jesus' words in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, where Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman or a man, depending on your, never mind, with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his or her heart. And then we have this troublesome text, example, in the Old Testament of David, King David, to be precise, the man after God's own heart, I might add. It happened late one afternoon. When David arose from his couch, everybody else, by the way, was out at war, because this was the time of year that kings went to war. Everybody else was out doing what they were supposed to do, but David, you see, idle hands are the devil's tools. And when David arose from his couch in the middle of the afternoon and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And the rest of that story is Bathsheba and David. Put limits around our thinking. We live in a culture inundated with a philosophy that flies in the face of the Ten Commandments of the teachings of Jesus and biblical Christianity. Pray and practice the presence of God. You know what practicing the presence of God is? as simply as this. I pause. We did it, actually, before when I prayed. God... I pause in my day, I pause in this moment to acknowledge that you are here with me. That's practicing the presence of God. Pausing for a moment for station identification. God, I'm pausing now to acknowledge your presence. If we did that more often and prayed, I think that we would solve some of our issues. And then learn to exercise self-control. Now, self-discipline is a muscle that only gets strong with exercise. Be accountable. This is what James says. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Confession breaks the power of obsession going to tell you a story. Don't get uncomfortable. In the early days of ministry, I was, came into an area of temptation and struggled with it for several weeks. And finally, I took Ruth and we went out for dinner and I said, Ruthie, I need to tell you about this. Temptation, not sin. Those are two different things. Took Ruth out for dinner and uh, I said, I need to tell you something. I told her, 
in a crowded room. No, I'm just kidding. Um, and I said, here's what I'm struggling with. And we talked about it. At that moment, the power of it was broken. Never looked back again. Confession breaks the power of obsession. Recognize dangerous habits. I love the words of Job. I have made a covenant with my own eyes. How then can I gaze on a virgin? The Bible's pretty explicit. And then here's one. Choose your love and love your choice. Choose to love your spouse. Don't just look for a marriage partner, a good marriage partner. Be a good marriage partner. Now put your seatbelt on. You say, well, I've been fastened up pretty tightly already, Pastor Don. <laughs> Ask yourself this question. If you're married, what's it like to live with me? You're all thinking, right? We all think that the other person's the problem. You know that greener grass thing? What's it like living with Todd? Now, not laugh too much. What's it like living with Kevin or Leanne or Scott? Or Brittany, what's it like living with me? Shall we move on? And the last one is this. Lean on God's faithfulness. You know the text as well as I do, or most of us do. I shouldn't assume everybody does. 1 Corinthians 10.13 no temptation has overtaken you or me that is not common to man or woman. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but, will, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Do we believe that? Okay. Viktor Frankl put it a different way. Viktor Frankl is a, um, was a Jewish psychiatrist and survived two, not one, but two, Holocaust concentration camps. Two. His book, The Meaning of Life, or Man's Search for Meaning, everybody should read it. It's powerful. He says this. He says two things. He's going to, I'm going to give you two quotes. First of all, everything can be taken from a man or a woman. Language is indicative of the time. Everything can be taken from a man but one thing. The last of the human freedoms. To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. To choose one's own way. And later he says this. Between stimulus and response, <clears throat> there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose our response 
And in our response lies our growth and our freedom. So this is what he's saying. Kevin comes up here and slaps me across the face. That's the stimulus. And in between my response, there is a space. And in that space is my freedom and my choice. And my choice can be, I can react and slap him across the face himself. Or I can do something other. To say that I just couldn't help myself is a lie. It's not true. Because Jesus, or rather Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 10.13, and Frankel defines it for us. That in between the temptation and my response to the temptation is a space. And my freedom and my choice there. Where I get to say no. So I am tempted, hypothetically, I am tempted by some woman, some beautiful woman. And the stimulus of that temptation and between my response and reaction to that is the space. But this, your partner has an affair. And in, in the knowledge and learning about this affair is the stimulus. And then before our response is a space of our choice and freedom. And I'd like to finish today with the words of 2 Timothy from the New International Version. For the Spirit of God gave us, sorry, for the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Father, I know that talking about adultery on a Sunday morning on a long weekend is a bit of a stretch. But Lord, you know. And our purpose here is not to condemn or to condone, but to provide a way forward. And so Father, this morning I pray that if there are those in this room or those watching online or will watch this archive and they have been involved in infidelity, adultery, unfaithfulness, an affair, then I pray that their way forward may lead them to confession and repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation. For those who have been sinned against that marriage partner, I pray that this communion time would be a moment of sacredness, would be a moment of intimacy in the spirit where you speak to our hearts and you heal us <clears throat> and you give us peace. But for the rest of us who have not yet 
But as Jesus says, we have been guilty of, look, we ask for your forgiveness and your cleansing and your grace to understand as you, your word says that there's no temptation that we've endured that is not common to all people. We're not that unique. But in the temptation, you provide rescue. And Lord, that's what Frankel's talking about. Between stimulus and response is a space. And in that space is freedom and choice that nobody can take away from us. How we're going to respond or how we're going to react. So I pray now, Father, that your soothing, medicating, comforting work of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, would now just fill this room and this space in our lives so that we can come to the table of the Lord with confidence, boldness, in here as we reenact the Last Supper. Speak to our hearts. Speak to our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.